1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. I recently had the great pleasure of talking with Timothy Morton about his new book, Hyperobjects, Philosophy and Ecology After the End of the World. This was published in 2013 with the University of Minnesota Press. Now, what is philosophy and ecology after the end of the world? The whole book is devoted to exploring this, explicating this, and it does so by taking as its focus this notion of hyperobjects. Now, what hyperobjects are, what their qualities are, how to understand them, and how to think with them is, in fact, the whole point of the narrative and the argument of the book. So I won't go into too much detail about that right now. But I will say that in taking on a kind of object like global warming, something that is so huge that we can't ever see it in its entirety or experience it in its entirety at any given moment. What Morton does is he really opens up a whole way of thinking with and thinking about objects in the world. It's really been transformative for me um, since reading the book and talking with him about it and the way I think about not just things and objects, but also how I see artworks, how I listen to music. And you'll hear toward the end of our conversation that a lot of the book, especially the the last part of the book, is really devoted to introducing and um, asking us to think about some artistic representations and explorations of some of the ideas that either he's talking about or some ideas that engage with and intersect with the ideas that he's talking about. So it's a really fascinating book. I think it's a really important book. And it's very useful, especially in the context of this channel, for those of us who think about and think with um, STS. So uh, objects in terms of actor network theory, in terms of networks, this will really, if you take this book um, and its contents um, to heart, and its arguments to heart, it'll really potentially change how you think about what an object is, how it functions as part of a network, and how we do STS, frankly. Um, So I think it's a really fascinating book. It's really fun to read. It's written in a really engaging style. Um, And Tim is very fun and very engaging to talk with about it. And so I hope you enjoy the book. Um, I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Um, And I hope you really enjoy the conversation. I'm here today with Timothy Morton to talk about his new book, Hyper Objects, Philosophy and Ecology After the End of the World. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Tim. Thank you for your patience in dealing with the inevitable technological um, complications of having these kinds of remote conversations. And thank you for the
0: well, time to talk
1: with me as, as we've already been talking about, even though listeners um, won't be privy to the previous incarnation of this. It's a f- absolutely fabulous book. I really, really loved it. And I'm really, really grateful um, that you're willing to take the time. Oh, to, gosh. Say, so thank you.
2: That's very nice of you, Carla. And yeah, given that we are inside, one of the that we're inside is Earth's magnetic field.
1: That's right. These
2: Things can happen.
1: <laughs> That's right. So, Tim, could you start us off again um, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background and specifically? Oh, sure. Um, how did you come to this particular um, combination of work that bring or the particular kind of work that brings together the combination of a very philosophically informed approach to problems that engage ecology and ecological thought.
2: Yeah, right on. Um, I've written obliquely about ecology since 1989 when I did my first stuff at Oxford on food, you know, because when you write about food, it's always, you have to think about ecology. Um, but there was this rather conservative with a small C kind of environment around talking about ecology in the humanities at the time And so it took me a rather long time to get my mojo together to address it explicitly. And so the first book that was really explicitly about ecology was Ecology Without Nature, um, which, you know, the the conclusion is in the title, right? If if you want to think in in an ecological way, paradoxically, you have to drop the concept of nature. Um, And then I wrote what I take to be the prequel to that which is called the ecological thought and um you know it was very nice to write that book it was it, it was a way of exploring darwin and and related evolution theory and um, some of the philosophical things that i'm still interested in such as deconstruction and in that book i developed this concept of hyperobjects and it was towards the end you know and i sort of looked at the word And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. These huge, great things, like not just one Styrofoam cup, but all the Styrofoam cups on Earth ever. Right. Not, 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 not just one shower of rain, but all the climate on Earth ever. Right. Not just this telephone conversation, but all the electromagnetic waves. Right. On Earth. Right. Or around Earth. Right. And so on and so on and so on. Pollution, radiation, you know, all these things like that. Right. They're, they're, they aren't just concepts. They're things. Right. They're like aggregates um, of, uh, you know, bursts of gamma rays. Right. Um, scaled up to a massive uh, spatial temporal scale and so i called them hyperobjects. and i thought oh that's an interesting word i wonder what it means it's like a sort of 16 by 9 letterbox wide screen word you know and it's got this weird fusion of, of, of greek and latin and um you know at the time i sort of wrote about it a bit in the book and people picked up on it and they invited me for some reason for a whole year i got flown around earth people were saying, can you stand in front of our small group of academics and say the word hyperobjects up some kind of explanation as to this peculiar word? And so I did that for a bit. And out of that came the book. And that was why it was so nice to write it, because I sort of gigged it before I wrote it you know and um so i sat down in the cafeteria of my university at the time and just wrote it without any notes in 15 days and then gradually put all the footnotes in and all that and just um that's how the book showed up and i think it is a book i I think it really is a book rather than like a a talk or or a or an essay or something
1: Absolutely, I think one of the things um, that's really striking as a reader is how organically it works as a book and how mm. well designed and thoughtfully designed it is as a as a book and i've um I'll just mention, I see a lot of books. I read a lot of books because, you know, mm. for various reasons because of um, the particular um, way of being an academic that I've mm. somehow adopted. And it's such a pleasure and it's so relatively rare to oh. have an object like this that's clearly – that springs from organically – and very thoughtfully the kind of topics oh. and kind of issues that you're writing about. So the book
0: Gosh. Um,
1: is split into two parts, right? And, and we can um, talk yeah. about this and I'll ask you uh, to say a little bit more about this. Part one offers a kind of philosophical, historical, cultural explication, explanation of, of hyperobjects, of what they are right. and what their qualities are. And then part two, it, as you put it, explores the human appropriation of hyperobjects. It's not mm. separated formally into numbers. Chapters. It's quite a bit more more thoughtful than that, actually. And so, could you say a little bit about the structure of the book, how you designed oh, sure. it, and how you came to um, really building it in this particular way?
2: Yeah. After a certain while. Once you've done a few of these things called books, you realize something that's blindingly obvious about them to everybody except for you because you're an intellectual. Not you, Carla, but me, right? <laughs> Idiot me. After about doing four of them, I realise, oh, yeah, duh, a book, whether you like it or not, is a product that somebody buys in a store, right? This buyer is in Amazon, and she's thinking, oh, that looks like something I want to part with my hard-earned cash for the sake of reading. Who is that, and why does she want to read it? Right. (laughs) And so a book has to be something that sort of surprises you somehow or takes you on some kind of journey so that you end up in a place where you weren't when you read it. um, When you come out of the pipe of the book, something about the way you think about things has been slightly transformed. Yeah and so that's why you're willing to pay cash money you know because because that's what you want yeah and um what i wanted was for that person to be almost anybody right like not just a scholar Mm -hmm. so my first thought was um let's write it in a way that is really easy to read but really difficult to understand but you can read it right so you're delivering the the concepts in a way that's totally easy to to understand the sentences right but obviously it's very difficult to think them right and you're trying to empower people to think those things and so when I put it through a readability test it came out as ever so slightly easier to read than T.H. White, The Sword in the Stone and um, that was good for me because, because that meant that technically like someone who was 12 could read it they wouldn't understand it even i don't understand it for goodness sake you know but um somehow they could at least read it right and um then you know more sort of specifically you start to think if you've done a few of these things a book doesn't have to just be a certain number of chapters right a book could be all kinds of different things and i was in toyota getting the car fixed but i thought What's this book? This is a stupid enough place to start this book. Let's do it. Oh, right. It's really two parts. It's not chapters, because basically, it's just basically like, what are hyper objects? And how should we humans kind of dispose ourselves towards them? So it's a book with numbered sections, with titles, right? Subsections. I thought, Oh, that's brilliant. That works. And when you give yourself a constraint... when you're you're doing a long-term project, it's really good and sort of necessary. And so that was one reason why it then became quite easy to to actually put it together. So, yeah, the the structure of it, but also I think um, the sort of the tone, you know, which is a little bit maybe personal is a word or maybe phenomenological is a word or sort of experiential or something because, first of all, it does help you to go on that journey. And second of all, I truly believe that one of the mistakes that the intellectuals have made for about 200 years, funnily enough, since the beginning of the, the, um, what we'll talk about in a bit, the Anthropocene, which is the big Mac daddy hyper object. Um, the, um, Kind of dominant way of of being a humanist in intellectual is to talk about talking about talking about talking about talking about the possibility for talking about in this kind of infinite Monty Python argument sketch regress, right? And for technical reasons, which I'll be happy to explain if you want, that's impossible. And so you might as well, instead of doing that, which I associate with a kind of cynical reason or I'm proving that I'm cleverer than you because I can see through you from my lofty position you dive into the other thing which is the hypocrisy thing you know and um so you have to be like just this idiot who vaguely notices these things happening in the world like like global warming Mom, in the style
1: I think one of the really wonderful things about this style as well, and I think you mentioned this um, early on in the book, is that it does reproduce the kind of relationship that we have to hyperobjects in terms of knowability by giving us glimpses and not necessarily writing this book in such a way that... You're assuming through the structure that it's possible mm. to give a complete and perfect, unproblematic, understandable mm. from the first go image of what hyperobjects and their consequences are, because that would in fact right. undermine the kind of work that you're doing, right? So
0: right.
1: The, um, my, I mentioned earlier, um, and I'll mention again, it really does yeah. resemble one of my favorite images in the book that's there from the beginning, which is this octopus. You you mention, or you describe all entities as shy and retiring octopuses that squirt out a dissembling ink as they withdraw into the ontological shadows. And so just as the octopus recurs throughout the chapters, also the voice of describing and taking us into a relationship with the phenomena that you're talking about also kind of comes to the surface and sinks down and offers us glimpses into the shadows and then sheds light on them and then makes us realize the futility of trying to see everything all at once and grasp it. Um, because that's just not, uh, the way it works. Right. And Mm. I think the the way that you are taking a very intimate tone in writing the book and the way that you're structuring the book really does a lot of work to help ground and emphasize and communicate Mm. the nature of the arguments that you're making. So
2: that's, that's very nice of you. And, um, yeah, it was a very deliberate, conscious choice, um, and you know, um, it's to do with this thing that you could call, you know, the phenomenon thing gap. Right? I can think about, I can think global warming, I can compute it, right? But I can't see it,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? That's the trouble. I I can see the the patches of brown on the lawn outside because it hasn't rained for ages. I can hear radio reports about the flooding in the southwest of England. And all of those things both are and are not global warming at the same time. They're like appearances of global warming. They're global warming phenomena. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And there's this radical sort of irreducible gap between what a thing is and how it appears. But the real kicker is you can't locate that gap anywhere on the surface or in the depth of the phenomenon that you're sort of studying, right? So it's very disconcerting. And this kind of disconcertingness has been around in philosophy since Kant, you know, who at the start of this Anthropocene thing pointed out this phenomenon thing gap and it's sort of how science works, right? We have all this data and then you see patterns in the data and then you infer various correlations that may or may not result um, in a conclusion that there's some causal relationship. But you can't see directly the cause and effect stuff churning away underneath in fact you come to realize that that is a really out-of-date picture and that funnily enough the octopus ink which is the phenomena the data that's coming out of the octopus sort of is where the causality is weirdly so imagine if the octopus was really articulate and um, was able to go on um, the Oprah Winfrey show Right, And for some reason it was like some kind of Muppet octopus that could speak English. Um, And what this octopus said about herself, right, um, would be very, very, you know, well articulated because she's been in psychoanalysis for a long time. And, um, And yet what she says on the Oprah show is not her. It's not the octopus. It's actually lots of stuff that she said, right? So we have this weird situation where this octopus is an octopus, right? It's not a toaster, right? It's this discrete, unique thing. It's not just a lump of Blair. It's an actual octopus, right? And yet, we can't point out what the actual fundamental octopuses apart from all these octopus appearances like having eight legs and suckers and you know being at this step in the evolutionary history of of life forms on earth and all that kind of stuff and experiencing all kinds of emotions and hugging you in this funny way and all that with their tentacles you know all of those things aren't octopuses they're octopus appearances but they're inseparably glued so what an octopus actually is. So we have this weird paradox, right? There is global warming, but you can't directly see it or touch it. So the trouble is the deniers can get in there and say, look, see, it doesn't exist because you can't see it or touch it. Like it snowed in Boise, Idaho last week, so it can't exist, you know? Um, and in a way, that's another kind of way of covering over this phenomenon thing gap. They're basically saying that if I can't see it or touch it, It's not real. And that's a kind of pre-Kantian thought. It's like Dr. Johnson, you know, saying, I refute him thus, sir, by kicking a stone on a beach. You know, when you kick a stone on a beach to refute an argument, you haven't made a refutation. What you've done, he's refuting Barclay, actually. um, What you've done is you've made a kicking sound and this kicking sound is not an argument. It's just a kind of brutal, aggressive noise that you use in some kind of macho way to perform. You know, I don't want to know anything about this thing that I can't see or touch, but's real, right? And that's the thing about these hyper objects. They are totally real, right? But you can't see or touch them. And then... With 2020 hindsight, based on getting used to these things, like since the 19th century, yeah? deep ecological time, evolution, climate, things like El Nino, you know, which were discovered in the later 19th century, and on and on and on and on, radiation, electromagnetism, on and on and on and on, and on right? Um, you basically get to this point where you realise that things like bottle caps and iPhones and tables are also like that.
1: That's right. And so this actually brings us really nicely into uh, what I wanted to ask you about next. We've been talking about hyperobjects. And in fact, the book is about hyperobjects as ostensibly the special category of kinds of things. And the first part of the book is going to take us through some of those qualities. And we'll talk about some of these in detail. Viscosity, non-locality, temporal undulation, phasing, interobjectivity um, and these are all I mean, we'll talk about these in detail and um, explore what those mean. But by the end right. of the book, um, just like just as some of these qualities are emerged as you were talking about the octopus on Oprah, right by the end of mm. the book, we have realized that perhaps all objects, including the octopus on Oprah are hyper objects. Now mm. you mentioned um, just a few minutes ago, um, the Big Mac Daddy hyperobject, that is the mm. Anthropocene. And this is, in fact, a way of grounding um, how you are contextualizing this study and also putting it into dialogue with some mm. recent um, works of anthropology, of philosophy, that are also situating different ways of studying and understanding selves in the world in the context yeah. of a proposition of uh, this, this period, periodizing of the world and our place in it through the notion of the Anthropocene. So mm. could you talk a little bit about that? What is the Anthropocene for you, and what kind of sure. work is it doing um, for the, the kinds of arguments that you're making here in the book?
2: Sure. So the Anthropocene is a term um, for a geological period, and it's a very weird geological period because... It's a geological period that, unlike other geological periods, or at least most of them, is defined by a catastrophe. Um, that, that, that's actually a very good way of defining geological periods. I think it's better than the kind of linear progression of them that's always a bit paradoxical. But anyway, we, we, we can talk about that if we like. But the other strange thing about it is that you can almost date the beginning of it or at least one of the decisive beginnings of it, to 1784, that's really really weird, you know, to date a geological period to a certain time in human history. But it's the moment at which the steam engine was invented. Now, Karl Marx says that when the steam engine was patented as this general machine that you could plug into all these other machines, you've basically got industrial capitalism. And it was created to, you know, solve problems relating to feeding more people more of the time um, in the later 18th century. So it's the agricultural revolution morphing into the um, industrial revolution. And then Paul Crutzen, who's an atmospheric chemist, also dates the beginning of the Anthropocene this uh, invention of the steam engine because it's then that you start doing things like shoveling enormous amounts of coal into steam engines to make them work and then later on you start turning ignition in your car and putting oil and gas in it to make it go, right? And these things have resulted in a layer of carbon in Earth's crust, among other things, that is decisively made by humans and I'm sticking with that. Humans made the Anthropocene, not octopuses, not toasters, not jellyfish or coral reefs, it was humans and if that makes me an anthropocentrist then so be it but I don't think it does actually I think what it does is it makes me realise that I am a member of a hyperobject, I'm a phenomenon of a thing called human race, let's say provocatively but I can't directly see or touch there's a word for people who think they can see or touch what human species is, it's called racist
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: That's another way of filling in this kind of phenomenon thing gap with some kind of weird putty that's going to stop you from seeing the gap so you say oh humans are this and humans are that right racism and speciesism i think this anthropocene concept is the first truly genuinely anti-anthropocentric concept because what it actually means is not big bad humans now control reality because we're harold in the purple crayon and we can do anything let's geoengineer the heck out of earth i think that's not what it's saying i think what it's saying is as in the words of the great you know, philosopher buckaroo banzai wherever you go there you are right in other words you think you're so special mr humanoid you know but really everything you do is totally caught in a very specific web of faith which is basically earth conditions earth systems other life forms and you're needs and drives and wishes and unconscious fantasies and blah, 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 and concepts and ideas and all that stuff, right? And, you know, you're not this master, actually, of of the universe, and you're not. You haven't achieved escape velocity from your conditions, which was, of course, the fantasy that they were all having in the later 18th century and that we still have, right? You know, it's a very common move, um which I was just talking about, you know, this kind of meta meta meta. Anything you can do, I can do meta. It's this thing where you go, I am now talking to you from a position outside of human philosophy, out, outside of social history, something, 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 philosophy, blah, 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 blah. Right. And it's this weird kind of gesture, that's actually impossible. It's a little bit like John Cleese, arrests no he doesn't arrest silly me getting too excited john cleese <laughs> sues people who treat him like basil faulty now that should strike you as, as ironic because that's the kind of thing that basil faulty would do right basil faulty would sue people who 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 sort of imitate his funny walk and all that stuff and get him to do the voice and Sybil, Sybil, and all that right but and so the very act of him sort of trying to achieve escape velocity from being Basil Fawlty is is precisely what's Basil Fawlty about him, right? So the very act of us trying to sort of escape from our social and historical conditions and from the entanglements in in material things and the web of fate as we now construe it in modernity is just drilling down, literally in this case, because it's about oil, deeper into that web of fate. And it's basically the structure of any Greek tragedy. You know, the the, the tragic hero discovers that she or he, in his or her very attempt to escape, has actually made it worse, right? Look at the Oedipus story, right? And it's also the structure of my favorite kind of movie, which is the film noir, right? Which basically has the form of romantic irony, where, you know, the detective discovers that he or she is the culprit, right? Angel Heart, Blade Runner, right? Deckard discovers that he's a replicant, right? It's the same when you realize that you're a member of the human species. It's this thing that isn't you, but it's actually much more you than you are. You're just a phenomenon of it.
1: This is actually a really beautiful way of also getting at one or two of the fundamental points um, that emerge out of the book right and so I think this um, lack of an outside this inability to get outside of mm. the phenomena um, really sounds a lot like the this point about the end of the world that you're making. Oh yeah. And it gets us, I think, really nicely into um a discussion of some of the qualities of hyper objects. And so just as um there is no drilling down to get beyond, right, to get yeah. side um you're making the point in the second part of the book, but this is something that infuses Mm. every part of the book at the same time, that hyper-objects are responsible for the end of the world. Um, There's there's a very particular way that you're invoking that. And
0: so
1: one of the the implications of that, and and I'll ask you to talk about that, what does that mean, the end of the world, Mm. is that there is no getting away from, there is no away. Um, And this brings us to also one of the first qualities of hyper-objects, which is they stick to beings that are involved with them. So Mm -hmm. we have this this collection or constellation right now of hyper objects stick to beings that are involved with them. This is what you Mm -hmm. call viscosity. And this is a way of understanding how and why there is no getting away from, Mm -hmm. which means there are no boundaries to the world. That's somehow this container outside of us, which means we're at the end of the world, um, which actually Mm -hmm. creates some possibilities rather than closing them off. So could you Mm -hmm. talk there's a lot going on here, but can you talk about this um, viscosity, the act yeah. of getting away, and the end of the world.
2: Yeah. Maybe I can start with the end of the world. <laughs> Perfect. Because <laughs> it, it is in the subtitle of the book, right? Yes. And the idea is um, it started off as a kind of general gripe that I had, that I was talking about in talks and writing about in other stuff, about this idea that the end of the world is coming and we have to do something to stop it, Right. Which is actually structurally remarkably similar to what George Bush thinks. You know, there's an apocalypse coming and we have to do something, or rather, in his case, we have to not do anything, right, about earth conditions because the apocalypse will wipe us all out. And so there's like left wing and right wing and kind of sophisticated speculative realist and all kinds of nihilist ways of thinking about that end of the world thing and i think this thing is kind of blocking us from actually relating to ourselves and other non-humans you know in a way that has a little bit of ecological justice ethics mercy whatever you want to call that politics right in it um and um fine enough, it's re-inhibiting, right? And obviously the rhetoric that it, it hasn't been working. If I get another email that says Earth is about to blow up, you know, with global warming, I'm going to scream. You know, it, just, it doesn't work. It immediately pushes, especially a conservative denier person, into, into defiance, and you don't want to do that. I think just strategically, and we'll get to the more kind of philosophical reason in a minute, I just think strategically it's better to start with, we are already dead, The disaster has already occurred. This is the afterlife. You're actually, you know, like in that movie, um, Jacob's Ladder, the guy has to figure out that he's already dead. Then he can act, right? But before he figures that out, he's like in complete confusion and horror, you know, it's some, it's some great relief realizing, oh, it already happened, right? It happened in 1790s, you know, uh, beginning with the shoveling of coal into these steam engine things. And it carried on with Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima and the dropping of the bomb, which also put another layer of things in earth crust and blah, blah, blah. And this is this is after the end of the world, right? But it's not just that. It's like, when you scale up human actions or any actions to earth magnitude there's no such thing as a way right so when you flush the toilet yeah whatever is in there doesn't go away when you look at it in earth magnitude it just goes into you know the gulf or the atlantic or the wastewater treatment plant right and so since there's no away there's really no world because the idea of world is I'm surrounded by things that are within a kind of horizon, and beyond that horizon is something that I can't quite know, right? And, but I do know it now. I do know explicitly where my toilet waste goes, right? It's, it's, it's part of the reason why people resist thinking ecologically because it's so, They think it's boring, but what's underneath the boringness is actually a feeling of abjection, right? Like, I'm surrounded by waste stuff from me and other beings, and I am kind of waste stuff from me and other beings. And, you know, it's just like I'm surrounded and penetrated and made up of all these things that aren't me, and I can't peel them off me, right? So that's sort of like viscosity, right? Now, the other thing about viscosity is it's a little bit like realizing that you're in a loop, Right. It's a little bit like realizing that no matter what you do to try to escape from the loop, you make the loop worse. Right. And um, that's basically ecological awareness. And I think ecological awareness takes this kind of loop form where you think that you're doing something on one level, but actually on another level, you're doing something totally different. And those two levels are actually completely mixed together, but you can't tell. It's like being on a Mobius strip, right? Like a strip of two-dimensional stuff that's been twisted and made into a loop. And when you draw your finger around it, you think you're just drawing your finger around it, but suddenly you realize you flip over onto the other side. But then you think, when did that flip happen? The twist was everywhere in the strip. So really, there's no other side right? There's no world because world also depends on this idea of there's uh, another side, right? Somewhere over there, there's this thing called nature or beyond or, you know, over there, right? And when you think about ecological stuff, where does that stop, right? Does it stop at on you know Earth's atmosphere, or does it stop with the magnetic shield around Earth that, that 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 protects life forms from being zapped, or does it therefore actually stop with the Sun or the solar system? I mean, it just goes on, right? It's you can't actually draw a boundary that well, yeah. And so, from my point of view, philosophy had better stop getting into the boundary drawing business. Right. It, it, it it It's a better get out of that business of trying to establish what the difference is between a phenomenon and a thing, and instead it should get into the allergy medicine business we need thinking that enables us to have not so much of an allergic reaction to other beings so that we don't automatically delete them in some way quite literally or or conceptually you know and instead are able to to tolerate coexisting with them just like you tolerate coexisting with like hay fever pollen when you take the um, allergy medicine yeah Mm -hmm. and um you're sort of surrounded by and penetrated it's like the force but only like really sucky and it makes you feel bad you know (laughs) And, and and it's really physical you know and um so viscosity is like that it's like the more you try to pull away the more you find yourself stuck so of course one solution to global warming is oh i know i've got a clever idea let's fill the ocean with copper or iron or whatever the hell let's make a huge mirror and put it in space, you know, and even James Lovelock says, you know, please trust us, please trust us, engineers, scientists, people, we know we've been Mr. Hyde for 200 years, but really we can be Dr. Jekyll, really seriously trust us, trust us, give us your money, trust us, trust us, please, and it's like, really are you seriously comparing yourself to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because that's the least trustworthy thing I can possibly think of, you know, that makes me want to run very fast, right, and so one of the things is Let's try not doing that for a bit. I mean, how's that been working out, right? This idea that we can totally manipulate and change everything, you know? And I know that's the sort of fear that people have about this Anthropocene thing. And they think, oh, it's the it's the ultimate sort of, we're all George Bush decider type people who just decide and create realities and oppress other life forms and stuff. But it's not. It's almost the opposite. It's like, do you realize that when you're doing that, you're actually imprisoning yourself much worse in the phenomena you're trying to escape. Mm-hmm.
1: And actually this also um, kind of, for me evokes one of the other qualities of hyper objects that you talk about here in this part of the book, which is interobjectivity. And you, you make the point here. Um, yeah that entities are all connected into a, a, an interobjective system you call the mesh um, and talk about that yeah. as a fundamental property of these objects. And so this seems to be, I think, a really nice evocation of that. Also now, because of the right allergy metaphor, I'm not going to be able to think about viscosity anymore without thinking about blowing my nose, which uh-huh. is, is not entirely a yeah. thing. Um, but, uh, but again, also, uh, in the spirit of this connectivity that so beautifully comes out in the book and is so beautifully out and how you're um, oh. describing the book. I think you also talked about the Möbius strip, which brings us to mm. another one of the characteristics of hyperobjects, which is the way that they problematize notions of locality.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, yeah.
1: as a historian um, reading this book, and I, you know, I'll be at a very um, freakish kind of transdisciplinary sort of historian. Um, one mm. of the preoccupations that I have as just part of my craft is a way of trying to think through um, and think about time and space creatively Mm -hmm. and as as part of the craft of what it is to tell a story, the Mm -hmm. creation of time and space. And so this part of the book um, in which you're talking about the ways that hyperobjectivity really challenges the way we might otherwise take for granted ways of thinking about time and space is really, really productive. And I think, you know, other things, among many other things in the book, um, is, is one of the really important aspects of this, um, and Mm. potentially wide, with wide implications for those of us who work on anything having to do with time and space, which is all of us, Mm. right. But historians in particular. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about time and space here. Um, one of the, or the, a couple of the qualities in addition to this viscosity that we talked about um, and the interobjectivity, two of the other qualities that hyperobjects manifest are what you call te- uh, non-locality. So hyperobjects are non-local um, and also mm. temporal undulation. They involve very different temporalities. In fact, they create um, different temporalities mm. than those that we're typically familiar with on a human scale. So can you mm-hmm. talk about these uh, elements of our knowledge of and understanding of hyperobjects' time and space and how they kind of mess with our notions thereof.
2: Oh, sure. So we may all be familiar with the sort of weird thing that happens to very, very small things, which is that you can entangle them such that you can make one, you know, you know, polarize or jiggle in a certain way, and then the other entangled particle does exactly the sort of complementary thing, not exactly the same. Um instantly. In other words, like as if the speed of light could be broken, right? And that's a bit weird. And so people are thinking, what is that? And some people are thinking, is this just a funny thing that happens at at the quantum level? Or actually, could it happen at higher levels? And some of the younger physicists are starting to seriously take um, that concept for a bit more of a spin. It was considered quite taboo when it first started off, And some of the early physicists got into big trouble for thinking about it. But now it's quite clear that you can also entangle, you know, things that are millions and millions of times larger than, you know, um, subatomic particles like electrons or photons. Yeah. So that provides a kind of metaphor for thinking about how, um, you know, we're having this phone conversation, right? And you're, I don't know what, 2,000 miles away, maybe more. And yet... I'm talking to you, and somehow we are linked through the um, magnetic shield around Earth via this telephone, and so on and so on. And so there's a way in which distance is is weirdly abolished that's not quite the same as non-locality because you know then you know there's still some time involved right but it's kind of an interesting metaphor and it might not even be a metaphor you know it might just, just be the case that everything really does behave in a quantum way it's just that we haven't gotten the ability to you know do more to larger things because you have to make them very, very cold and very, 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 very um, still and in a vacuum before you can actually observe these things and it's very difficult to do that with something the size of me um, without causing me to die um, and other things like that. Um, And so that sort of non-locality and, you know, you think about how um, the weather over there can influence the weather over here, that's because the weather over there and the weather over here are inside this higher dimensional thing called climate, right? And so the weather over there is a local manifestation of the climate, you know, of earth climate, and the weather over here is a manifestation of it. And so those two things are interlinked in some way, although they appear to be different right? So sort of it's a metaphor, but it's maybe more than a metaphor, right? And um, the whole idea that, uh, you know, when you talk about temporal undulation, what you're talking about is the fact that time and space, if we're really going to get up to speed, finally, At least with Einstein, you have to admit that that time and space are are, are aesthetic properties of things. They're not They're not like boxes that contain things. They're actually or underlie things. They're actually things that sort of ooze out of of objects. Right? They literally ripple. Right? They've just proved that there is really a gravitational field around Earth by putting all these gyroscopes into space, and they actually observed by the Movement of these gyroscopes the the, the evidence of the actual um, gravitational field right uh, the gravity well of Earth and um, space time vortex right that's being emitted by earth right it's actually a thing that comes out of Earth because Earth is a massive object right it's a hyper object right and so temporality at that scale. To do with earth has weird properties right that are different from how i think time goes and space goes because i'm small enough relative to earth to feel like i can walk along a kind of nicely linear grid of time you know but then you know even my watch runs at a different speed when i'm on a plane than it does when i'm down on earth so in fact That idea that I'm actually in a kind of nice, neat grid is just a kind of illusion based on the scale that I'm at. And it's a workable illusion because I can use it to calculate various things like how do I get from A to B, you know, down the street to the supermarket, you know. But it's not completely where it's really at. And so when you think about things that are big enough, you have to think about how they... Time and space are like verbs, you know. Things, time, and they space, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, so, and different things have different kinds of uh, space-time. And they have different kinds of, as you say, temporality. And it's about time that we just started to really get used to that idea. Because I think it's very, very default intuitive, this kind of easy-think kind of time that's just a kind of box,
1: now so if hyper we've talked a little bit about the um or quite a bit about the background of this idea of hyper objects we've talked about some of Mm. their qualities so they stick to beings that are involved with them they exhibit their effect interobjectively they're non-local and they involve very different temporalities now the Mm. last um quality that you talk about here. Is phasing and it's penultimate in the chapter, but it's maybe yeah. to get to this last. And this is fascinating. So you've already talked a little bit about what this means, right? In, in terms of your description right. of a hyper as resisting our ability to see the whole thing at the same time. We only see
0: parts. Mm-hmm.
1: One of the really, really affecting things that came out of this chapter is something that I really love about the whole book, and that Mm. is very, very much um, a characteristic of the age of asymmetry in particular, and we'll get to that. But in this Mm. discussion of phasing um, as this quality of hyperobjects, you are introducing and bringing us into one of the many, many works of art, of music, of literature, of philosophy that populate the book, and that were Mm. just a complete joy. Joy For me to learn about for the first time. Oh, um, and so there's gosh. just a, a whole community of new friends, um, really, that comes out of oh. the book that are now, that I'm, I'm really delighted to spend time with now that I, I would not have met had I not read the book. So thank you for that. Um, it's-
0: oh, gosh.
1: So this new friend that came out of this chapter is a painting called Untitled two thousand eleven.
0: Oh yeah.
1: By, right, by an artist um, Yukulji Napangati. and this you yeah. use this painting to talk about phasing, um, but also to talk about much more than that. So could you, um, if you wouldn't mind, yeah. could you introduce this painting for us and talk of about course. its significance? And I should also mention for listeners, there's a really beautiful plate of the painting in the book, so they can go to the book and see it um, themselves as well.
2: Oh, brilliant! I'm really, I'm really glad you asked me that question. Um, um, So there's uh, there's this painting, and it's in the Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney. And my friend Douglas Kahn, who is a sound theorist, and I went into this museum because he works in Sydney, and I and him saw this painting and yukuchi napangati is uh one of the pintupi nine she's one of the last people who emerged out of the outback in the early 1980s and so really her perspective on the world is a little bit sort of um neolithic indigenous um maybe even pre-neolithic paleolithic right Um, certainly nothing to do with agricultural society certainly nothing to do with the Anthropocene right and what's interesting about it of course is that it's deeply deeply contemporary and I truly feel like one of the ironic things to do with human beings thinking they've escaped their historical conditions um, is that through doing this over and over again we finally achieved a state of awareness that's not unlike being in an indigenous culture if you think about it people in indigenous cultures are not happy-go-lucky people immersed in their life world they're actually really anxious right only they've made friends with their anxiety because they have it all the time we only have it in our culture when we do things like buy houses or take out student loans right but when you have to take out a micro loan let's say just to buy a fridge you know you've got that anxiety happening all the time when you don't know when your next meal is coming from which is a much less contemporary problem then when and that's where agriculture was invented which is the big elephant in the room by the way um, you don't know where your meal is coming from next meal right and so you have basic basic anxiety and I think that's very interesting because that's what we've ended up with by trying to escape from anxiety we've made it much much worse actually so anyway This painting is a really beautiful, moving to me painting that it actually does something to you. It's like a sort of, the painting is a painting and it's sort of showing you a little bit in that amazing kind of linear code of, of aboriginal painting, the journey of these women across these sand hills, right? And these rituals that they were performing, but it's also this incredible hyper, hyper Bridget Riley painting where there are these interlocking force fields of patterns created by the interplay of the wave-like lines on on the painting surface, right? And so the painting kind of grips you, you know, it actually sort of holds you and grips you and it comes all the way to your eyes just like global warming does and radiation, it comes all the way into you and onto you. It's not just over there, right, in the gallery. It's sort of right in your face right and i like that kind of art i like art that's a little bit threatening to my ego anyway um this thing called phasing is what's happening when you're looking at it because like imagine this thing that we were just talking about the different objects space and time in different ways right as a verb so Imagine when you chuck a stone into a pond and it makes these ripples, right? And these ripples are space-time ripples, right? Now imagine if you chuck another stone in, there are these other ripples. And where those ripples intersect, there's, there's this thing called an interference pattern because those two sets of ripples are out of phase with each other. They're happening at different times, at different speeds, across slightly different spaces, Right. And the interference pattern can create all kinds of extraordinary effects when you dial it in in a certain way. So there's that African sort of moiré pattern that can happen in clothing, for example. Um, And um, so phasing is kind of what happens when we see for very briefly hyper objects, you see, because we only see little pieces of them. Right. And those little pieces of them are like out of phase with the whole. Thing and so there's this kind of weird interference that happens, right? And it's sort of disturbing and uncanny and um. You know, like how an interference pattern is. It's sort of weirdly beautiful. And yet, and at the same time, it sort of defeats your idea that pictures are just static things that exist over there somewhere because they're sort of shimmering or or, or rippling. And they they involve your optic nerve, right? When you get the interference pattern close enough, right, it starts to mess with your optic nerve. So you see all these sort of rainbow patterns happening within the pattern right? Or you do if you're me, you know, because you have some kind of weird brain damage, I don't know.
1: <laughs> this actually also really beautifully brings us into um, the, the last part of the book. So similarly to the way that you're using this painting here to talk about and bring us into not just the phenomenon of phasing as it is a quality of hyperobjects, but also the kind of world that Mm. can emerge out of and aesthetically and experientially thinking with and of and amid this set of phenomena. Mm. Um, there, one of the last chapters of the book really goes into a whole mm. community of these kinds of works that are both beautiful, disturbing, and also engage with um, mm. the age of what you call asymmetry here. So, we've already, in introduced right. part two of the book, um, The Time of Hyperobjects, we've already talked a little bit about the idea of the end of the world. And the last yeah. two parts of this uh, part two of the book. Describe ways that you are arguing here that hyperobjects have ushered in a new human phase of what you call mm. hypocrisy, weakness, and lameness. But uh-huh. hypocrisy, weakness, and lameness also happen to be very generative. I mean you're you're really taking right. these concepts and really complicating yeah. and turning them around.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
1: There's a whole section on hypocrisies. Um but right. the age of asymmetry actually goes into the other, sort of some works that engage these other two qualities.
0: Weakness.
1: Yeah. So could you, um, in whatever way that sure. excites you, talk about these notions of hypocrisy, weakness, and or lameness, and some of works coming out of this that you're most excited about in this part of the book?
2: Right on. So, first of all, let me say that those terms are deceptively negative, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's a whole way of reacting to hyper objects, which is best summed up by the face of um, um, McCulkin, you know, in Home Alone, <laughs> when he does that kind of horror face, like, oh my God, with his sort of hands on his cheeks, right? And there's this very negative strand of speculative realist philosophy that says horror and actually despair are the final, you know, re- reaction we should have, you know, to fully knowing what reality is, you know, or knowing more about what reality is. And I think that's like a big old trap of modernity. I agree with my friend Jeff Greipel, who's in the religion department um at Rice. And he says there's a syndrome amongst modern intellectuals which goes something like this. If it's depressing, it must be true. Okay? So the words hypocrisy, weakness, and lameness are designed to, to provoke a kind of, you know, that kind of negative feeling, but then a kind of weird, ironic kind of comedy feeling. You know, it's, it, it's so much easier to relate to people if you all admit, that you're a hypocrite or a bit of a lame or you haven't got all the answers or you're a bit weak, right? And you're, everyone's a little bit broken, right? It's so much easier, right? Why is it easier? Because I think that things are literally, not just people, but, you know, spoons and, and, and jaguars and, and clouds and frogs are hypocritical, lame and weak, right? Um, and so I can talk about that a little bit, Right. Um, I think basically that the, um, the lameness comes from the fact that everything has as a condition for its existing a kind of inner flaw that Greek tragedy calls hamartia, which means wound, right? To exist at all, you have to have some kind of weird flaw, right, that could intrinsically destroy you. Think about the densest thing in the universe, a black hole, right? Even a black hole, which is bigger and badder than most things, eventually evaporates, right? Because it emits Hawking radiation. So it has this kind of inner inconsistency that causes it to collapse, right? As Gödel said about logical systems, in order for that system to be true on its own terms, it has to be able to speak Nonsense. So, funnily enough, it has to be able to say things that contradict what it's officially saying, right? So, I I take it that because logical systems are intrinsically flawed, therefore, all beings are intrinsically flawed, which is the same as saying they're finite, right? Things are finite. Right, the thing about hyperobjects is not that they're infinite, but that they're, they're, they are distressingly finite. It's easy for us to imagine infinity. It's very difficult for us to imagine a hundred thousand years, which is how long global warming goes on for. Right, and so that's the that's the lameness both of me thinking about global warming and of global warming itself. Right, it contains an inner inconsistency, just like frogs or you know Greek tragic heroes. Right and the weakness um the weakness has to do with the fact that you know whenever i encounter a thing there's always this intrinsic gap between um what it is and 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 how it appears so that my 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 grasp of it is never completely total or perfect so the way something else relates to something else is always a little bit weak in that sense right and i think that one of the things that we're learning that we're learning hopefully from ecological awareness is that we are slightly lame and weak and that it would be better if we weren't so much like you know kings of the earth and more like sort of cunning weedy people who try to kind of crawl around not screwing anything up too much anymore, you know, and um then the hypocrisy is also to do with that gap right it's the, the word hip, hypocrisy comes from a Greek word that actually means actor right, and um I think that anything is a sort of actor, right, like um anything acts as a kind of delivery system for itself, and there's always this weird difference between what a thing is and how it appears, right? So there's, and, and that's what we call hypocrisy, right? You're different from how you appear, right? And I think also, you know, on a human level, that kind of defeats the idea that the top way of being right is cynicism. Um, and here's why, which is my Clinton impersonation. Um, <laughs> I can't do an American accent. Don't ask me why. I've lived here for 22 years. I can't do it, but I can do Here's why, right? So basically um the um you know the cynical attitude is just disguised hypocrisy if you think about it being cynical means that um you think um that you have um totally transcended all hypocrisy right um so you have some kind of hope actually you also hope that if you vomit you know intellectually in public disgustingly enough other people might be convinced you see you hope that your tactic will convince people so you're actually a hypocrite because you're not totally cynical right so funnily enough there's only two choices straightforward hypocrisy or hypocritical hypocrisy right so i'm going with straightforward hypocrisy and so i think that that's the position we're all in these are the acting ecologically because when i do ecological action x it means that i've excluded a little bit ecological action y right i know that driving a prius isn't going to save the planet right lots of people go oh ha 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 those stupid prius drivers whether they're from the right or the left or the environmental movement they laugh at the poor prius drivers which i am one right And i know i know that right but it's better than a little bit not driving a Prius it's especially better than cynically attaching wheels to a leaf blower and driving it around as a cynical statement about how you can never ever you know fully you know destroy the the oil industry through products that are about the oil industry you mm-hmm. know and um so there's a kind of lame hip- hypocritical weakness to to any ecological action no matter what it is it's always a little bit limited and finite and and so sort of getting used to that is 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 kind of good and it's a little bit like how for every three greek tragedies in the greek tragedy festival in athens there was a comedy Right. So it was like this, like, oh, my God, I'm stuck in the web of fate. Oh, my God, I'm stuck in the web of fate. Oh, my God, I'm stuck in the web of fate. Actually, that's quite funny. And so it's sort of like that, right? In the future, hopefully, there could be some kind of laughter that comes out of the sense of doom rather than despite the sense of doom actually coming out of it. You know, in the same way that in the middle of John Carpenter's film, The Thing, the thing morphs into this horrific sort of spider that's like an upside down human head with these legs and sort of crawls out of the door. And one of the, can I say an expletive on this or shall I blank it out?
1: You can can say an expletive.
2: All right. One of the guys, one of the scientists in the in in the Antarctic says, you uh, you gotta be fucking kidding," <laughs> you know. And, and 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 then they and then they 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 torture, it, right? And it's this moment of horror, but it's also funny. It's really funny. It's like it's so bad that you start laughing, and that's a little bit what ecological awareness is. It's so bad that you actually start laughing. It's not complete horror. The, the, the complete horror thing is that home alone face that's sort of like stuck in this kind of gesture, you know, that doesn't go anywhere.
1: And it's not laughter as a kind of dismissiveness. It's laughter as Mm-mm. a mode of kind of deep engagement. And I think that's one of the things right. as we um I've already taken up a whole bunch of your time and so I'll, I'll um, oh, bring us to a close at um, some point soon but mm. I wanted to just mention for listeners that one of the things that really um, comes out of the end of the book despite or because of as a product of this discussion of hypocrisy weakness, lameness is we're left with this flowering of beauty, this kind of creativity and beauty and the possibilities oh. of being in the world that are manifest by music and by painting and by performance. And ways oh,
0: yeah. um,
1: that you're leaving us with that actually end the book on an extraordinarily inspiring note. And so, listeners, oh. go look at the paintings of Cornelia hesse Honegger. Listeners, go listen to the work, um, including mm-hmm. the well-tuned piano. Lamont Young, is that how you pronounce his name? Yes, yes. I'm going to mispronounce everything, but listen to Lamont Young's The Well-Tuned Piano. Listen mm-hmm. to Francisco Lopez's sound art, including La Selva go find Jared Fowler's P.S. Look at mm. kumara Tolliver's pod. Look at Chris Wainwright's Red Ice 3. These are just mm. a handful of the um, really beautiful objects that come out of the end of the book um, where you're showing us the possibilities oh, of where to go next. And I, I just want to thank yeah. you because I would not have known of any of these before and it's just completely yeah. my eyes.
2: Well, I see one of my jobs as introducing people to art that they might not know about you know and so it's it's been really fun over the years to have this conversation with slightly unknown or emerging artists and some of these guys do work that's actually based on some of my stuff (laughs) and or vice versa and so I thought wouldn't it be interesting to actually put these in the book you know and also just the fact that art I truly believe, you know, and this is another conversation, but I think art is not just kind of candy on the surface of the dull cupcake of reality, right? And it's not also just PR mm-hmm. for scientism. Art is actually directly working with cause and effect, right, in the same way that that, Yukulchi Napangati painting does something to you, right? It's directly working. Scientists study cause and effect. Artists make cause and effect right? And so what they're doing, funnily enough, if you think about it, is they're channeling the future, right? Art is, is from the future. That sounds weird, doesn't it? But I truly think that art is like a way to see the future a little bit. It comes from the future. Um, and um, that's why it's not just a sort of representation of our cultural conditions. It's also a kind of gate into something that could, like transcend those conditions
1: it's creating a kind of temporality right
2: yeah exactly
1: so tim i would love to talk to you truly for another couple of hours and let's make time to talk um (laughs) to talk about um this other whole set of issues that you just i'm sure um but for the time being i need to let you go because i've already taken up Mm. so much of your time and thank you so much for your patience my pleasure really Despite the fact that we've talked um, for an hour an hour or more than that, even before we um, came to this part of the conversation, Mm. there is a ton of material in the book and a ton of ideas that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's extraordinarily Mm. rich and we only just um, got to a bit of it. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
2: Oh, my gosh. Well, okay when you look at the picture on amazon or whatever you see this unbelievable picture of an iceberg i wasn't responsible for that i had an idea for the cover but like all intellectuals don't really know jack about about visual art really you know and i thought my idea was good but then they sent me this one and it was just beyond concept you know and they said that when they presented it to the you know editorial board the design team everybody gasped and the, and, and and i think it's because the iceberg it's like is that two inches away and really small or is it two miles away or is it 20 miles away and really really big you know and it's a composite photo so you it's like a, it's a photo that a human could never see because you see the iceberg above the water and you see the iceberg under the water and that's perfectly hyper objects it's like there's this real thing that you can't quite see you know and so the picture has this amazing evocative sort of delightful slightly threatening horror slash wonder to it you know and even if so even if you don't read the book just look at that picture because it really does you know it really does it did something to me anyway when i saw it
1: mm-hmm. it's beautiful it's beautiful so um, now that we have, now that the book is mm. out, and I'm still kind of part of my brain is still processing the fact that you wrote this in 15 days, and so I'm, I'm mm. it's going to take me a little while mm. to get over that. But, <laughs> but now that the book is out, me
0: Congratulations!
1: Too. <laughs> What's next for you? Are there any projects right now that are currently inspiring you now? Oh
0: gosh, I'm um, sure
2: the
1: answer is yes, <laughs> but are yes, you, that you'd like to mention?
2: Absolutely, I'm writing a book. Called dark ecology, which has taken a little bit of a time to get the mojo together for that, because that's a totally different form. But it's more burrowing into ecological awareness, you know, and this kind of loop form that I've been talking about. And I'm also writing a book called Weird Essentialism because I am an essentialist, but I'm a weird essentialist. I figured that out. Like the early 70s 70s French feminists, you know, they were essentialists, but they weren't your grandma's essentialism, you know. And so I think there really are things like spoons, you know, but they're weird spoons, right? Um, And so I'm writing that. And um, I'm just about to publish this thing, on Buddhism. It's it, it, it's like a study of Buddhism by me and these two other guys in this Chicago series called Trios. And um, that's another thing I'm very interested in. And finally, I figured out that it could best be like a really, really long essay with these other two essays that were like in dialogue with it or, or trialogue or whatever you call that. Wow.
1: Have you ever, um, just the last thing that I'll ask you just because it um, just occurred to me after some of the things that you were saying. Yeah. Have you ever curated an exhibit at a museum?
2: Do you know what? Do you know what? I I've been um, I've I've talked about possible ex- exhibits about hyper objects. Um, I'm about to go to the Southwest South by Southwest Music Festival in Austin
0: uh-huh.
2: um, to talk about an exhibit that was done by someone else based on his idea of my idea of dark ecology and uh, apparently it's this building covered with styrofoam with mushrooms growing out of it Mm -hmm. and you know i'm going to talk about that for some bizarre reason they wanted me to say something about it um and i'm actually thinking that with this dark ecology project like there's a lot of visual art and hyper objects and in this dark ecology one i would like there to be a companion CD or album on iTunes or website or something where there was music, mm-hmm. because for some reason there's a lot of music in that concept. And um, so I'd like to, you know, curate some kind of sound art um, event um, that, that that was around that. Actually, very much indeed. And I'm talking to all these musicians who who are doing things on dark ecology a little bit already, mm-hmm. um, seeing if I can get them together to sort of make something out of that you know
1: i think that's totally brilliant and i'm going to look forward to i hope that oh. i'm going to look forward to that
2: oh thank, gosh me too yeah
1: Tim, thank you so much um again for oh. your generosity and your good humor
0: in oh, dealing gosh. with thank the you.
1: um the technology um it's a, just an absolutely inspiring and brilliant book and it was such. i'm
2: a so touched by you. that that's so, very very nice of you and thank you for being such a great interviewer and great. for helping me to you know give words to some of these things that are quite difficult even for me to sort of put into words you know
1: you've been listening to new books in science technology and society thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time